This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. That's Georgia Hartster. Thanks. That's Karen Kilgariff. You're welcome. As always. Uh, you know, yeah. week after week. <laughs> truly, you're welcome. Yes. Thank you. Still. How's it going? Uh, I found Ted Lasso. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think of Ted Lasso? Good. I, Vince and I realized that we had accidentally started it on like episode six. So we were like, this is dumb. And then, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because basically deep down, you're like, I'm so confused. Right. I don't get it. Well, you know, it was the feel good hit of quarantine. Right. I mean, like it served that purpose so perfectly. Yeah. And the idea of it of like unrelenting unflagging optimism yeah. and positive behavior is really it is kind of innovative yeah it's that midwestern niceness that sometimes we just need in our lives yep um so what's up with you this was very exciting six months ago i bought tickets to go see this unbelievable classical pianist igor levitt mm. who was playing at disney hall and because I was like, I never do anything and I want to do something that I'd actually be excited to do. Yeah. Instead of going to concerts with people and, and trying to be excited when I'm actually very rarely excited. Yeah. So I got these tickets and then I just kept thinking they were going to get canceled because of the COVID wave and the COVID surge and Omicron and everything. And it, then it came up to the date of the show and it hadn't been canceled. Yeah. So I grab the great Bridger Weiniger yes, and we go to that. Disney Hall <laughs> and we went to, essentially we went to the symphony. It was the most like hilariously fancy yeah. thing. We were totally, we felt like fish out of water and then we realized that it's not what you think it is. Right. Like it's, Everyone's putting on their best outfit. So it's not like they always dress like that. Are you're they? the one. I no, I didn't see that. I think it's much more casual okay. than than people assume. It's right. not like a night at the opera style gowns. you know, with the lorgnettes and the furs. <laughs> yeah. No, none That's of that what was I happening. Imagine it's like gowns and then long <laughs> gloves up to there and like your jewels come out of your safe or whatever. <laughs> it, was, it was I saw almost no jewels. But the presentation that we did see was absolutely one of the most magical things I've ever witnessed in my life. Wow. It was like jaw droppingly amazing. He's the best 
pianists I've ever, not that I've seen that many classical (laughs) pianists, but I was just like, how is someone doing that? It was thrilling. And he got like three, he got a consistent standing ovation. He had to come back out three times. Oh my God. People were literally yelling bravo, like a movie of something happening at the symphony. It was amazing. It was amazing. The thing I'm most impressed about, and that whole thing is impressive, is that you decided six months before that you knew what you wanted and you'd still be interested in doing it in six months. I know. I'm such a like, we'll think about it closer to the, like Vince is a planner. He'll he'll get like up in the morning when there's like, a you know, the pre-sale and you have to be yeah. at 6am where it's going to, he, he takes care of that. And I'm just like, yeah, I want to go to that concert because knowing that it, a week before is when I really know if I'm going to want to go or not. Right. Yes. The night before. Well, and I think that's kind of always the attitude I have about it where it's like, it's kind of a social thing. It's kind of a where everyone else is going. Mm -hmm. But for this, because my dad and I saw this guy on 60 Minutes, Mm. like he got well known because he was supposed to go on tour in 2019 and all, all of his big, you know, it was supposed to be like his debut fancy, you know, his album debut kind of uh-huh. like here he is. And it all got canceled because of the pandemic. Yeah. So he started giving concerts from his apartment that would wow. that were like on par. So all these uh-huh. people who normally would never be watching classical music or anything on the, along those lines suddenly started watching because it was like yeah, as we're saying like that's as we all know how it, how it was in in quarantine where you're just suddenly like yes, I am interested in that. Yeah. And I cannot keep watching the same things I'm watching yes. that are bad news constantly. I need some kind of soul lifting fucking experience. And we, I think everyone learned in quarantine how the arts save us. They yeah. really just do. And that the people yeah. that really are amazing who've dedicated their lives to it, it's a wonder. To, it's a human wonder to see it. Yeah. So, but I was raised listening to classical music because my dad is a total Beethoven head. What? Home gym. Home gym is Mr. Beethoven. We have like dun, 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 dun. paintings of Beethoven at our house. Wow. So. <laughs> Damn, Jim. Right? So I knew. I was like, I bet you all know these songs if I go. I'll know the hits. Um, You're singing along. So, yeah, I was like, totally, I was fake conducting. It was just a really, (laughs) it made me realize it's like, after so long of being trapped inside, and especially in my head, it felt so healthy to do Mm -hmm. something, not only to do something in public, everyone was masked up. There was all kinds of checks and stuff, checks and balances. Mm -hmm. But then the actual experience of it is like, that's why people are upset is because that, that experience being taken away. And some people, you know, really need it and really like really rely on it. And so to be back in that room or I shouldn't say I'm not back. I've never been there before. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And it was funny because then you texted me right as I was sitting there. And I know you're like, hey. you're never in my life. Do I expect to text someone? How are you? And get a photo of the symphony back. <laughs> like never, ever. And at the moment, I'm like, oh, cool. I went to the symphony. Oh, that's cool. Like I am at look at this photo. I am at the symphony, which, by the way, I don't think you're allowed to take photos at Disney Hall. So I love I appreciate you. I will you beforehand. One. People were doing it. So I uh, got one in and it was while they were kind of like warming up. And yeah, I, I got I, shit for doing that. The only time I've been there to see Grizzly Bear. Was it was during like, their performance, though? 
Uh, no, it was beforehand, and I was so taken aback by how, the beauty of the room. Yeah. And Usher came up and was like, put your motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, shame. Well, that was my favorite part is that I get a text from Georgia that's like, hey, wh- hey, how are you? And I go, I'm at the motherfucking symphony. <laughs> and then just it's a picture of the inside of Disney Hall, which is the craziest uh, thing you've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. And then the amazing. second one is Bridger next to you smiling at the camera, which, of course, is just like a joyous photo, just as joyous as the symphony to see Bridger's right. smiling face. Who better? Or masked smiling face. Masked smiling face but also who better like because i was thinking i don't know anyone that would want to go with me yeah this is very much my (laughs) this is something i've cooked up yeah and then i was like yes i do know someone yes you do yeah Bridger. it was great we had a really good time and also it 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 went by so fast really i thought it was gonna feel really long or like Mm -hmm. stuffy or something and it was thrilling it felt like 20 minutes it was amazing what's his name again the conductor igor levitt igor levitt the pian- pianist yes okay. i think you say pianist i think so too but i don't care yeah. rad oh mm-hmm. so i'm not watching game of Th- real quick game of thrones update oh I'm you not- bailed I'm not bailing. I just like needed a minute because it was just like so clangy with the fucking swords. And also I'm not that into um, skeletons sword fighting. <laughs> I think it's kind <laughs> of stupid. I think you're watching Jason and the Argonauts. I think something happened. You turn the channel. No, no. The White Walkers are like skeletons. <laughs> oh, oh, right. right and it right, just right, reminds sorry. me of like um, Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which I fucking can't stand. And like <laughs> skeletons sword fighting. It just like looks so stupid and surreal to me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time with that, so I'm just like, kind of watching like in ten minute increments. Sure, but and then I found out. Uh, hold on, are you looking up a name? I am. Yeah, if you're waiting for the 20 year anniversary to watch Game of Thrones, this will be a spoiler. This is for a you. spoiler. Okay, so when Jon Snow's one true love, Egret, died, I yes. was of course heartbroken. Yeah, and then someone commented. That they're married in real motherfucking life. And I almost right. lost my mind. I looked up photos and was just like so yep. overjoyed to see them on red carpets all looking clean. That's why that love affair was <sighs> so compelling on screen is because it was actually happening in real life. Oh, I love those. I love those. Love it. Love that she calls him Jon Snow. First name, last name. I've always been a John big fan Snow. of that. Yep. Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. That's good. So good. So good. So that was that's a highlight for me. I'll, I'll get back into it. I'm I'm just it's dragging in the middle. What's the last episode season that everyone hates? Is it seven or nine? <laughs> no idea. Okay, well, we'll get there. <laughs> Wait, have you seen the part where Jon Snow where they're it, it, he goes into battle and he's the first one on the battlefield and they they come toward him? Have you got you would know it if you've the seen it. Sword fighting skeletons? No. <laughs> oh, the uh the uh like underlings or whatever. I don't. Where he's like a, he's protecting the wall to take over you just watch him. It's almost like first person you oh. are going into battle. Oh, no, I guess not. Okay. You have something coming up <laughs> that is one of the most, no joke, like profound experiences I've ever had watching television. Oh. They, the way they shoot this thing oh and how it happens is I can't believe how they did it. It's so brilliant. Okay. I'll get there. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'll let you know. But it's if it's too clangy right now. Like I the other night was in such a spot that the only thing I could figure out to watch was all creatures great and small. I would just I went back in because I was like, that's perfect. I need it to be quiet. I need it to be green. Yeah, Yeah, I need some British accents. And then, yeah, maybe someone like the late that housekeeper that makes them dinner all the time. It's just like, yeah, all that. This is what I need. Absolutely. Oh, I found another thing. Wait. Oh, the show that I love, Be Foreigners, on HBO Max. Yes. And I told you about it. So there's like a, it's, it's, um, guy who's from normal, from now times. Yeah. He's a detective. And then people start showing up in the bay. Right. And they're from three different time periods. Yes. And what some are Vikings, some are cavemen, and some are from like the 1800s. Yes. There's now a season two. And I just found out like a couple days ago. Oh, nice. And I'm so excited because they always do that, like European television where they they do six episodes and you never see right. again. Right. Like Afterlife was like that. Yes. Yeah. That sounds like Encino Man, honestly. It's almost like um Detective <laughs> Encino Man, but not there's less caveman characters. And it's basically a guy detective and then a Viking warrior detective. Okay. <laughs> it's a female Viking warrior detective. Oh, cool. So it's pretty great. That's what I was going to say, too, is that Ted Lasso is just the, the plot of Major League made into British, <laughs> a British thing. <laughs> am I wrong? I am not wrong. You are not wrong. <laughs> You're, <laughs> You're so right. right. You're so, so right. Mine. Major League was one of my favorite movies as a kid. <laughs> so I'll go. I'll take it. But what about um, Hottie, the hottest person on the planet? <sighs> God Holy damn it. Lee. Shit. I mean, it's so crazy. The appeal of that person. What's his name? God like, I know it too, and I just can't. It's like blank, blank. Everybody calls blank, him. Blank, blank. You know, everyone calls him as Brett Goldstein. The character name. His name is Roy Kent. Roy Kent. Fucking Roy Kent <sighs> is it. Wait, is he is Jewish? It. Goldstein? If he's Jewish, I I'm think he is. Lose my mind because. We get to claim him, which is always fun. I think you do get to claim him. <gasps> also, a British Jew. How Hot. exciting. Very fun. No, he's amazing. Yeah. And just him and his niece. It's so good. Oh, my God. And he's such a meanie. It's so fun to like watch him be soft when he's like when mean he, and mad. <gasps> yes, it's great. But then like... <laughs> There's that one scene where he tells his niece to fuck off, <laughs> but he's saying it conversationally. Yeah. It's so hilarious. I love it's so it. Good. I love yeah. that character. My sister forced me. I have to say I resisted Ted Lasso for a long me time too, because yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to be common. Yes. I didn't want to be a, peop- a person that needed Ted yeah. Lasso. Yeah. It's like needing an, you know, primetime like sitcom that's like i don't need big bang theory like i i watch heady fucking (laughs) british shit and then you're watching like i could see the appeal of this somewhere entirely well and my sister my sister does a thing where like there's some things where she'll be like you'll really like it but she'll let it go but she would not let this go and i was like laura and she's like it's christmas (laughs) you know you're stressed out blah 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 you need to watch this and she forced me to do it and then of course then I was watching episodes without her. Right. And she was getting, we were getting right. into fights because I wasn't waiting for her. <laughs> oh, <laughs> your really relationship. Funny. That's so funny. That's like a boyfriend, girlfriend relationship, but sisterly. 
Yeah. Um, well, it's sisters at holidays. Oh, where it's just like yeah. she she had been waiting for me because she had stopped at some halfway through, and then I just plowed past. Was like, oh, I didn't realize, <laughs> pretending I didn't know <laughs> oh, that I think she was waiting a, for me. It just made me realize I have a different relationship with my family than you because I don't. Ha- I live in the same city as them, so I don't have to spend more than four hours with them at a time, even at the holidays. Like right. being stuck in a house together. <laughs> Being having to be stuck in a house, which the wording tells you everything. You <laughs> Do you mean st- staying in a house, enjoying being together and enjoying one's each other's company? Like I haven't. Yeah, it doesn't happen. I bet it's different. <laughs> it is. Well, it definitely is different. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this: my sister and I are we live very differently. Uh-huh. So, like by the time I leave her house, she's so glad I'm leaving yeah. because she's the kind of person that doesn't just clean her kitchen every single night, but she wipes it down wow. and then like Clorox wipes it what? down. Like she's like a weird. It's like she maybe from working in restaurants or something. Right. She's real clean. Or having a kid. She's like probably yes. Yeah. And she's just a neat Nick. Yeah. So by the time, you know, week two, she's like, I thought you said you were going to dad's. <laughs> I'm cleaning up after another teenager <laughs> named my sister. Basically. <laughs> where I'm like, I picked up those Hershey Kisses wrappers. What do you want? Uh, um, what else? I found, okay. This will be my last TV recommendation. Okay. This is on BritBox. I stumbled upon this the other night and it, or last night. I compared this to, it was like watching Sister Wendy, except for, for ancient civilization. I don't know what that would be called. Sister Wendy. Tell all our, yes, tell all our child listeners. Oh, yes. What Sister Wendy was to us. Sister Wendy is this ass kicking British nun. (laughs) She's an art, I think she, I don't know if she's an art professor, but she's an art historian. Yeah. This isn't a, this isn't a sitcom, by the way. This is a, like a real person. This is a real person who walks you through the Louvre, like all the great museums of the world, pointing at and showing you and teaching you yeah. about what's amazing about, uh, like great classical paintings. Yeah. And she's like your, your British grandma. And it's like, you know, you just, when you're younger, you get stoned and you watch it, or it's just like nice to put on in the background. But she doesn't, I have to say this, you think a Catholic nun is going to talk a certain way yes. about, say, like, you know, a nude or whatever. And she's like, there's a way the light touches the body. Like, she is yeah. about it. And she is, doesn't shy away from like the sex in paintings uh-uh. or the sex in art or any, all the stuff that I expected where the first episode I watched, I was like, go, Sister Wendy, you're doing <laughs> yes. it for all of us. Yes. Yeah. That's a good one to put on if you need, like, I think nowadays, it's, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube that. And we also started watching Two Fat Ladies, which you could only find on youtube Can you yes. believe that? some of those british sh- i can't find sister wendy on streaming huh. like i don't if somebody knows where she's hiding i think you probably have to buy it in some way right but so this show that i found it's called civilization spelled with an s because mm-hmm. it's british mm-hmm. with kenneth clark and it's a dude in a very sister wendy-esque way basically explaining to you how we learn about ancient civilizations through art oh. But he's talking as much about what was going on in the world. So that like, it's basically kind of like art, architecture, history, 
I can't even explain it because I'm not smart enough to, but <laughs> I felt like I was becoming smarter because I watched Definitely. Civilization with Kenneth Clark. Definitely. On BritBox. Like like what that art meant to that civilization and why it was profound or why whatever. Right, exactly. Like it was, you know, um, the the like the things that are chiseled over the doorway in a cathedral. Mm-hmm have meaning to the culture mm-hmm. who built that cathedral. Mm, like what was and he's on. telling you what the meaning is and what it's based on. And it's fascinating. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just like, yeah. you know, good for those of us who have gigantic gaps in our education. Yeah. And then another bonus of that is that when like someone you're dating comes over and looks at like your uh, watch history, they'll be like, whoa, <laughs> this person is smart. <laughs> Right. Look at how smart she is. <laughs> right. And then they're just like, it's only British television all the way across. <laughs> all the way across. <sighs> Should we do uh, the exactly right corner? Yeah. Corner, corner, corner. Remember that? Corner, corner. Corner, corner, corner. That was so long ago. The amount of fucking quotes that have lived and died on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. It is what it's all about. Um, let's see. Oh, well, the great news, and I'm very excited about this. Our podcast, our movie podcast, I Saw What You Did, has been on hiatus, mm-hmm. and they are back now. Millie and Danielle are coming back to talk about movies, the genres, the artists, and everything, topics related to Black History Month. So they're coming back in this month of February, and their shows are going to be centered around Black History Month, which is super cool. Welcome back, you guys. We're so happy that you're back. Very much. And also, this podcast will kill you is continuing their coverage of hepatitis. And then this time they're focusing on how discrimination impacts those experiencing the disease. So another fascinating lesson. Oh, also, don't forget they're in the fan cult, their MFM mini mini sodes. So you can get two extra hometown stories. That are just for the fan cult members. If you want to join the fan cult, there's, it's called exclusive content. We know all about it and we provide it That's for right. you. That's right. And then also like they don't come down. So you could, there's many of them up right now. So you could listen to many minis fucking that infinite, infinite all, and- all day long. Well, I think we've been doing it for like what a year and a half. Yeah. A year and a half. So infinitum of what's that word? <laughs> uh, infinium. In, are you talking about infinity? Infinium. Isn't that a word? Infinitum. Is that it? <laughs> ad infinitum. Like you can watch, you can watch them ad in, or listen to them ad infinitum. Yeah. Is that how you say it? <laughs> yes. You need the, <laughs> it's a Latin phrase. So I think you need the ad part at the beginning. Well, that's cool. I took typing instead of <laughs> Latin in high school. I'm a real fast typer, like a hundred and fucking twenty words a minute. So. That's and also that's a prof- you're a big reader, so you get you get <laughs> you make up your pronunciation because you're reading that. So true. Mm-hmm. Um, there's merch too. There's uh, some new patches for your jeans or your backpack. There's the fuck the patriarchy one. There's a lock your fucking door patch. So check that out if you want. Yeah, that's there's the corner for you. Corner, corner, corner. Boom. Boom. Um, all right. So you're going first tonight? I'm first. Today on this one? Today and tonight at Infinium. <laughs> <laughs> Infinium sounds like something from like a sci-fi show. It does. Or someone's We're mining name for Infinium sci-fi. on this planet. Oh, you may. 
If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. All right. Well, today I am doing one of these stories that, you know how sometimes like places will post like 10 photos that have crazy backgrounds or whatever, like crazy meanings. Yeah. I saw this one and it does have a crazy background, which I'm going to tell you about. It's the kidnapping of Jody Plochet. Trigger warning. There's um, sexual abuse of a child in this story. Mm -hmm. The sources used in today's episodes are a Washington Post article by Art Harris, two AP staff articles, a Sun article written by Henry Holloway, Jody Plochet's website, and two All That's Interesting articles, one by Tim Brinkhoff and one by Kayleen Fraga, and an advocate article written by George Morris. So here we go. We're in the early 80s. The Plochet family is living a pretty normal life in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The family consists of the father, Gary. He's a a heavy equipment salesman and a Little League baseball coach. His wife, June, had once been an aspiring nightclub singer, but had given that up um, to raise the couple's three sons and one daughter. 
In early 1983, the Plochets enrolled their sons in this Korean-style karate school run by a man named Jeff Dosett. He's a 24-year-old ex-Marine, and immediately the boys love karate. They love him. They feel like Jeff is their best friend, and he's known around town as the like the fun-loving karate teacher, coach. Mm. In August of 1983, Gary and June separate partly because June has felt stifled for their whole marriage because she had to give up this huge career that was starting to grow. And Gary moves out of the family home. And then the karate instructor, Jeff, he starts spending more time at the Pluchet house. June is thankful for this extra attention that Jeff gives the family. She says, quote, the kids like being with Jeff. He's kind and considerate. He's a good friend who provides emotional support. Uh, it's rumored, and I read in some articles, that June and Jeff started a romantic relationship. It's never confirmed for sure, but it is said that she kind of leaned on him emotionally during this really difficult divorce. Mm-hmm. But soon June starts to think that Jeff is spending too much time, specifically with her 11-year-old son, Jody. Uh, he quit playing football and basketball, so he could just focus all his time on karate, which is his favorite, and spending all his time with what he says is his best friend jeff Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, meanwhile gary the dad hears disturbing news from the father of another karate student uh, that jeff had been acting inappropriately with his kid the student and the father had to remove him from the karate school and then gary finds out that this isn't the only student who's been removed there are at least six other parents with similar stories Mm. that's not that's a pattern yep Gary starts telling Jeff to stay away from his family, but Jeff ignores him. And then on the morning of February 19th, 1984, Jeff asks June if he can take Jody to the school. He wants to show them the his excuses. He wants to show them the new carpet that he's laying down at the school. And June, totally trusting this friend of hers, says, of course, they say they'll be back in 15 minutes and they leave. But hours later... Jody, little Jody and Jeff haven't returned and June starts to worry. She calls Jeff's relatives who she knows she's like met them before because they're very close friends at this point. They're in Port Arthur, which is four hours away. And she finds out that Jeff and Jody had been there that day. And so June calls her brother, who's a deputy sheriff, and then she drives the four hours to Port Arthur. But by the time she arrives, Jeff and Jody are gone and she has no idea where they went. So June spends the next four days thinking that Jody and Jeff will return and just hoping for Jody's safe return, but they don't show up. And so she finally tells Gary what happened and they call the authorities who get a hold of the FBI. (sighs) A week later, Jeff calls June and asks her not to tell anyone he had called. Jeff has no idea that, of course, the authorities are there waiting by the phone with her and they tell her to play along. And so Jeff tells June that she has to bring the other kids to L.A. and meet him there, bring their school transcripts, almost like they're running away, you know, and starting a new life. And she wants him to play, like, come with him. And then on advice of authorities, June replies that her ex-husband, Gary, might use this, you know, craziness to get custody of all the children if you don't bring her son back. Right. He says, quote, if the court gives Gary the kids, I'll get them from him. I'm tired of people saying I'm insane. And if you say I am, you'll never hear from me again. So over the next few days, June continues to play along with Jeff anytime he calls. And then on February 29th, Jeff allows little Jody to call his mom to talk to her for a little bit. 
And so authorities are finally able to trace the call and they trace it to the Samoa Motel in Anaheim, just a few blocks from Disneyland. So they went from Baton Rouge, Louisiana and took a bus to Anaheim. Oh, my God. I know. FBI agents raid the hotel room and arrest Jeff without incident. Jody is returned home to his parents and Jeff is indicted for aggravated kidnapping. So investigators speak with Jody in hopes of kind of figuring out exactly what happened to him. And as Jody talks to them, investigators quickly realize Jody had been groomed by Jeff for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, Jody told them that once he was comfortable around Jeff, that's when the inappropriate behavior began. Jeff started, quote, testing the boundaries. He'd tell Jody that they needed to stretch. That way, if he touched Jody's uh, genitals, then it'd be, he could say it's just an accident. If they were in the car, then maybe Jeff would try to put his hand on Jody's lap and then say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Kind of like testing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Jeff starts molesting Jody who didn't tell anyone because he thought if his parents found out, they'd be really upset and he didn't want to get his, but he still thought of his best friend in trouble. You know, that's yeah, because he was, because the pedophile made him believe that they were best friends. That's right. He's groomed yeah. to believe that and protect yeah. this monster. Yeah. The abuse continued escalating until that day in February 19th, when Jeff took Jody, you know, allegedly to see this new carpet Jeff asked Jody if he wanted to go to California and Jody said yes. And Jeff said, okay, let's, you know, he says, let's, let's go. And that evening they take a bus to Los Angeles and along the way, Jeff shaves off his own beard and dyes Jody's blonde hair black so he could pass Jody off as his son. Mm. And once they're in LA, they check into the motel. Investigators are dreading telling June and Gary about what Jeff did to their son of course, it's every parent's worst nightmare. When Gary finds out, he's horrified and says, I'll kill that son of a bitch. Investigators also speak to Jeff, who openly tells them what he did to Jody. He explains that he himself was molested for years as a child. That's what led him to become an abuser himself. When investigators are done talking to Jeff, he continues sitting in jail awaiting extradition, um, which is scheduled for March 16th. On that evening of March 16th, Gary goes to his local bar. He's been in a deep depression ever since this ordeal and has been hanging out at this bar the past few nights. That night, three seats away from him at the bar is this executive of a local news station where Gary had once worked as a cameraman. So they were buddies. Gary and the bartender and this executive start talking about Jeff's extradition. Um, They find out that he's due back that evening and the executive calls the station to find out his exact time that Jeff's supposed to arrive at the airport, which is 9.08 that night. Gary hears the time and he takes off to the airport. He knows some of the news station employees who are at the airport waiting to film this pedophile, you know, coming back. And the police officers waiting at the airport might also recognize him because, you know, they're all local. So he puts on a baseball cap and dark sunglasses and he still has to wait a little while for Jeff's plane to land. So he gets a cup of coffee, then it goes to the bar and has a beer and then paces the lobby while the camera crew is set up to live broadcast Jeff's arrival. <sighs> When Gary realizes Jeff is about to get off the plane, he goes to like a bank of payphones, calls a friend of his. So his back is to the camera while the group of escorting officers are bringing Jeff in. And just as Jeff and the police start to walk by Gary, Gary says into the phone to his friend, 
I'm pulling the gun out of my boot. You're going to hear a shot. Oh, my God. Gary doesn't even hang up the phone before he turns, points the gun at Jeff's head and pulls the trigger. And this is the photo that I saw online of it's just like, I don't think you'd really know what was going on. It's like, you know, the 80s. So it's kind of grainy. And then when you know what's happening in this photo, it's horrifying. Jeff falls to the ground and Gary slams down the phone. As soon as Major Mike Barnett sees who shot the gun, he says to Gary, his friend, quote, son of a bitch. Why, Gary? Why'd you do it? And then um, Gary begins to get handcuffed and, and he replies, if somebody did it to your kid, you'd do it too. And camera crews have broadcast the entire incident live. Oh, my God. You fucking imagine. That's just... Ugh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Horrible. Jeff's rushed to the hospital and he dies the next day. Gary's charged with second degree murder. He tells his attorney, I just didn't want him to do it to other kids. The next day, Gary's out on a $100,000 bond and his attorney has him committed to a psychiatric hospital. The attorney tells the media that Gary was pushed into a, quote, psychotic state after learning exactly what Jeff did to his son. And this, he says, left Gary unable to tell right from wrong. So Baton Rouge residents and so many of the public don't think Gary should be charged at all. Local bartender Linda Boyd tells the Washington Post, quote, I'd have shot him, too, if he'd done what they said he'd done to my boys. Only I'd have gut shot him three or four times and he'd suffered before he died. Like everyone is on Gary's side, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, obviously, and that kind of like that vengeance mentality, not only is, of course, natural, especially for a parent, but that's the media eats it up. Right. So they're not going to go and find somebody that says, although this is horrible and I would, you know, I don't know what I would do if this happened to me. It's also wrong to take a life. Right. Like they're they're actually stirring it up because yeah. you know, especially back then. There's yes. I remember a couple of these um, stories happening where it was like courthouse murders. Yes. Of yes. of convicted pedophiles. There was there was one in California, like in Northern California. Right. It was like a dad. Yeah. So here's you know someone who's discussing these things. He's hard facts that we're discussing assistant prosecutor tells the washington post that they have a dilemma he says quote if we say what he did isn't wrong do we open the door for the husband of a rape victim or the mother of a murdered child to do the same thing do we declare open season on child molesters then rapists then burglars if the grand jury says gary what you did is forgivable what do we do about the next victim's revenge where do you draw the line? So obviously yeah. a slippery slope right there. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jody's dealing with the fact that his father shot and killed his abuser. Jody later tells the son how he felt about his dad killing Jeff. He said, quote, at first I was upset with what my father did because at age 11, I just wanted Jeff to stop abusing me. I not necessarily die. Jody says the murder put a wedge between him and his dad because I mean, he's still grappling with what exactly happened to him and what it means he's 11 
And up until recently, this had been his best friend and like mentor. It's trauma upon trauma. That's the other piece of it where it's revenge that is being enacted, of course, because of the love a father has for a son. Right. But he's actually not thinking about about the real effect that it it would have on his child. Exactly. Jody says the murder put a wedge between him and his dad. And but finally, after a few months, Jody forgives his father and things seemingly go back to normal. But Jody has and never will condone Gary's behavior. So on May 16th, 1985, 39 year old Gary uh, pleads no contest to manslaughter. Three months later, he's sentenced to five years probation and 300 hours of community service. So the only jail time he spends is when he was first arrested that weekend before he got out on bond. The judge says sending Gary to prison won't help anyone because he isn't at risk to commit another crime. Even before he's finished serving his probation, Gary's life is back to normal. He and June actually stay together after this. And he spends his time fishing and cooking. And he never regrets what he did to Jeff and says he'd do it again if he had to. So Jody becomes an activist and he turns his story into something he could use to help others. He graduates from Louisiana State University with minors in psychology, speech communications and philosophy and starts working in violence prevention. For years, he worked at a victim services center serving as a sexual assault counselor and prevention educator. He provided crisis intervention to sexual assault victims, facilitated sexual violence risk reduction programs from pre-K to college, and trained police officers, hospital staff, school administration, and parents on how to handle situations like his. Mm. He said to the advocate, quote, I wanted to give victims hope. I wanted to give parents knowledge, and I wanted outsiders to get a general understanding about sexual violence and sexual abuse. Jody urges parents to be involved with their children and be wary of an adult, including a family member or close friend who pays an unusual amount of attention to the child. He says, and I think this is a great quote, if someone wants to spend more time with your kids than you do, that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No best friends between adults and 11 year olds. It's just nope. doesn't you just that's not necessary. No. On October 21st, 2014, 68-year-old Gary Plachet passes away due to complications from a stroke caused by diabetes. Following his father's death, Jody decides that he's ready to finish writing a book about his experiences from over 35 years uh, before. He wants to help other parents by writing it. In 2019, he publishes the book, which is titled Why Gary Why, which is what the police officer said to Gary when he shot Jeff. Today, he continues to present professional and college training throughout the country about his father's actions. Jody said, quote, I cannot and will not condone his behavior. I understand why he did what he did, but it is more important for a parent to be there to help support their child than put themselves in a place to be prosecuted. And that is the harrowing story of the kidnapping of Jody Plochet. Wow, that's such a good point too it's like that kid needed his father to be around yeah. not to be then in the system and in a way yeah he could have potentially been sent away for decades and yeah. then jody has to deal with that trauma as well uh, what i mean it's a really good story to tell even though that's such a difficult yeah like it's topic to talk about and and i think such a flashpoint because it is such it is such a uh a, a difficult 
and horrible thing that yeah. people go through. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And like this, this kind of like, you know, would I do the same thing as Gary in that situation? Like, I bet every fucking parent who's been through that wants to. Of course. You know, it's so hard to admonish Gary for doing that. But at the same time, yeah, we can't take justice into our own hands or the whole fucking already fucked up system collapses. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh, my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient made in cookware. Made in was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Maiden. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of made in products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Why do I always remember lyrics to songs, Karen, that I haven't heard for years, but I always forget my email passwords? I know, right? It's like our brains only want us to retain useless information, but with 1Password, that problem solved. 1Password is an award-winning password manager that's trusted by families and large-scale companies alike. If you're tired of being the person that everyone texts for a streaming login, hand that honor to 1Password. They let you share logins with people and with groups. With 1Password, you can securely switch between any device type or operating system. That means if you're a family or business that uses both Mac and PC, you won't have trouble sharing your private data. Don't let the name fool you. 1Password does more than just store passwords. It can autofill usernames, payment details, and personal information. And they notify you about potential data breaches. For business operations, 1Password has a dedicated support team that will integrate its security tools into your existing workflow. 1Password saves everyone time. And we all know that time saved equals money saved saved. Your accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. 1Password was named Wirecutter's best password manager and companies like Salesforce and IBM trust 1Password to secure their most sensitive information. So you can too. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial at 1Password.com slash MFM. That's two free weeks at 1, as in the number 1, Password.com slash MFM. 1Password.com slash MFM. Goodbye. All right. Okay. Well, it's Black History Month. It is February, the shortest month of the year, and Black History Month. When's that going to change? <laughs> it, that comes up every yeah. every year. Yeah. Yeah. But until it does, it is now Black History Month, 
And so a long time ago, I did the story of Eugene Bullard, who was the first black pilot. Mm -hmm. And he it's his whole insane life story of going over to France and um, becoming a pilot and fighting in not only World War One, but World War Two. Amazing. And all the other stuff that that guy did. So in the same thread, and I saved it when I saw it, in the same thread where people were talking about Eugene Bullard and like how no one knew who he was, mm-hmm. another name came up in that thread of an of a basically kind of an unknown black hero. And so I am today going to tell you the story of the life of Bessie Coleman. America's first black and native female pilot. Whoa. And her picture is so her like first pilot's license picture is the best. It is. She's wearing a, you know, a pilot's kind of like helmet from back in the day because it's the 20s. It's really good. Oh, my God. So let's see sources on this. There's a New York Times Basically, they were doing a series in the New York Times called Overlooked No More, Mm. where they basically gave obituaries for people that were not given proper obituaries the first time around, which is super cool. Yeah. So Daniel L. Slotnick was the writer for the New York Times for that for Bessie Coleman's Overlooked No More. Mm -hmm. There's also the book Queen Bess Daredevil Aviator by Doris L. Rich. There's an L.A. Times article by Maria Lynn Toth, a Wikipedia page on her. The National Women's History Museum has an article by Carrie Lee Alexander. And the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum has an article about Bessie Coleman. Okay, so it starts in 1919. 27-year-old Bessie Coleman is a manicurist at the White Sox Barbershop on the south side of Chicago. So her brother, John, shows up to the barber shop. He's a little drunk <laughs> and he's reminiscing about being stationed in France during World War One mm-hmm. and being in the army. And he starts teasing Bessie, giving her shit for being a manicurist and saying that women in France had way more opportunities than women in the United States, especially black women. Mm. And they start talking about aviation. And John tells Bessie Black women ain't never going to fly, not like those women I saw in France. But Bessie just smiles. She basically looks at him and says, that's it. You called it for me. She accepts her brother's challenge and she starts saving her money for flight lessons. No one can fucking needle you like a sibling. Uh, you know? Right, an older brother who's a little buzzed <laughs> and acting like he's the big man because he are, he already served for the yeah. army in World War One. Yeah. So... Not surprising that finding someone to teach her to fly proves harder than she first thought. She applies to program after program in the United States, but no flight school here would accept her, just like her brother John had told her. There's not a flight program in the United States that will admit black people or women Mm. of any color. Mm -hmm. But Bessie has friends in high places. Um, one of them is a man named Robert S. Abbott, who is the founder of the most widely circulated Black-owned newspaper in the country at the time, the Chicago Defender. And Abbott knows a thing or two about making your way in the world when you're a quote-unquote outsider. So he encourages Bessie to apply to aviation schools in France, where she will be allowed to learn. And then once she gets her pilot's license there, she can bring her expertise back home. Yeah. So... He doesn't just give her this advice. He offers to help pay for her travel and for her school. Wow. 
he even puts an ad about Bessie's plan to learn to fly in the Defender, calling for more donors for her cause. Mm -hmm. And a successful black Chicago banker named Jesse Binga comes forward and he just immediately pays for the remainder of everything. Oh, my God. I love it. So she's immediately on her way. So she has the money she needs. There's still one problem. She has to apply to French flight school applications, which means her applications need to be written in French and she doesn't speak French. Mm -hmm. So she quits her job as a manicurist and she takes a higher paying job as the manager of a chili restaurant. And she basically starts saving money. And when she finally has enough, she enrolls herself in night classes in French at Chicago's Berlitz Language School. (laughs) What the fuck? Like, yeah. Talk about chutzpah. Like that is... That's next yeah. level. She knows what she wants to do. Yeah. Which is to basically make her brother John oh, yeah. eat crow. <laughs> and she studies French for a year, basically becomes fluent, and then she fills out all her applications and she's finally accepted to the Caudron Brothers School of Aviation in Le Crotoy, France. So on November 20th, 1920, Bessie gets on a boat. And she makes her way to the northern coastal town of Le Cretoy, where she begins a seven-month aviation course that will change her life forever. I'll give you a little bit of Bessie's background. Mm -hmm. She was born Elizabeth Bessie Coleman on January 26th, 1892. She is the 10th of 13 children. Her family lives in Waxahachie, Texas. And her family is a mix of African-American and Cherokee heritage. And they work as sharecroppers in Texas. Bessie stands out as one of the brightest students in her class at school. She's an avid reader and she excels at math. Her and her brothers and sisters have to walk four miles each way to school. Mm -hmm. So when she comes home from school, before she even sits down to do her homework, she has to help the family with the chores and all the farming responsibilities. So in 1901, her father, George, tells her mother that he wants to move the family to what's now Oklahoma, but back then was called Indian Territory. George is tired of the racism that he and his family have to deal with in Texas. And since he's part Cherokee, he believes they can find a better quality of life Mm -hmm. up north. But Susan, his wife, doesn't want to leave Texas. So George ends up leaving on his own, leaving 12-year-old Bessie and all her siblings behind. Still, Bessie excels in school, and she earns a scholarship to the Missionary Baptist Church School. And after graduating there, she gets into college at the Oklahoma Colored Agricultural and Normal University in Langston, Oklahoma, which still exists. It's now just called Langston University. Wow. But because she didn't get a college scholarship, she goes away to school, but soon runs out of money, and she ends up having to withdraw after one term, Mm -hmm. because I think she probably tried to work and go to school at the same time and couldn't do both. Okay, so now it's 1915, and Bessie's brothers decide that they're going to move from Texas up to Chicago to find more opportunity for themselves. And Bessie also wants opportunity, so she follows them up there. But then soon after this, World War I breaks out. And her brothers enlist in the army. So Bessie ends up getting left behind in Chicago to make her own way. Mm -hmm. So she enrolls at Chicago's Burnham School of Beauty Culture. She gets her manicurist certification and she lands her job at the White Sox barbershop. 
It's this strength and perseverance that enables her to overcome any obstacle that comes up in her life. She's basically like, here I am. I've got to make this work. What do I got to do to make it work? And then she does it. She executes. And she's clearly really, really smart. Yeah. She can strategize and plan ahead. Okay. So now we're back in 27. Here's what I love too. Bessie went away to France to go to aviation school when she was 27. That's Wow, that's bananas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially back then. Yeah. Where 1915, you're 27, you're supposed to have five kids totally. and like, you know, be married or whatever. So she's like really living her life. Yeah. Okay. So she gets her start flying a, what's called a Newport Type 82 biplane. It's 27 feet long. It has a wingspan of 40 feet. And it evolved from um, a military reconnaissance plane from World War One, And basically, it's flown by a steering system that consists of a vertical stick, which is basically the thickness of a baseball bat in front of the pilot and a rudder bar under the pilot's feet. So basically, this means there's no steering wheel and there's no brakes. No. So when you want to stop the plane, you have to land it and then engage what's called a metal skid piece that's connected to the tail that like drags along the ground and slows the plane down. like an anchor <laughs> yeah <laughs> but bl- but just terrifying. like slowly yeah <laughs> slowly dragging him the bravery it takes to fly these planes yeah. is above and beyond anything that it, i mean today it would be scary yeah. enough but these things were like the wright brothers had just like wiped the sweat off yeah. their brow and bessie was like get me in there they're made out of like toothpicks and And like (laughs) tissue paper and hopes and dreams. (laughs) Okay. So this plane is incredibly fragile. So Bessie has to inspect it carefully before each flight during her seven month training. Mm -hmm. Failure to pay attention to the smallest detail could easily result in Bessie's death. But she's learning more than just flying. She's also learning stunts like bank turns, tail spins and loop de loops. These maneuvers the Bessie and her fa- fellow aviation students being taught are obviously really dangerous. Yeah. I also want to say she's learning all of this in a language she learned part time <laughs> for a year. Yes. Like it's in, a, in it, your native language, this is probably next to impossible. And incredibly scary. Yeah. Where you'd be like, are you sure? You're so sorry. Yeah. I hit this button right here. Yeah. And then Did you she's say like, yes or no just now? Because I don't know this language that Sivu play. But she, I think it's also, it actually is kind of a testament to the Berlitz school of languages because you learn that fast on it. And, and mostly to her brain. Like she wants to do it and she's like, well, then I'm just doing it. Then I have to just learn French real quick so I can go learn how to fly a plane real quick. Yeah. Okay. You know, people like that where they're like, well, I'll get there and then I'll just be immersed and then I'll learn it that way. (laughs) Where I would be like, I need to list the problems and then stay here and watch TV. So at one point in this course that she's taking, Bessie witnesses another student who's killed Mm -hmm. mid-flight in a in a terrible accident. So it truly is dangerous, like not just conceptually, but she actually witnessed that. And she would later recount it this crash saying it was a terrible shock to my nerves but i never lost them in fact she becomes known for her nerves of steel and she earns the nickname brave bessie Mm -hmm. she completes the course on june 15th 1921 and she earns her pilot's license 
And she's the first woman of color to accomplish this. So because the commercial flight is not available yet, Bessie knows that the only way that she can earn a living now that she's a pilot back in America Mm -hmm. is with her stunt flying skills. (laughs) Right. So she actually she sticks around France for another couple months after she gets her license and she continues her training with an ace pilot in Paris. Mm -hmm. So she's fucking living the coolest life yeah of all time essentially like why why would you want to go back absolutely <laughs> Just absolutely like, be a female pilot in paris and then go to the moulin rouge at right night. like right hell yes when bessie returns to the u.s in september of 1921 she arrives to a media frenzy and the reporters are welcoming her as a quote a full-fledged aviatrix said to be the first of her race that was an AP via the New York Times. So people were going crazy. Like people knew about this and heard about it. So Bessie uses the publicity to get herself work as a barnstormer, which is a like a daredevil pilot, mm. travels the country performing stunts for crowds and often lodging in farmers' barns while they're on the road. Wow. Yeah. But She comes to find out that the barnstorming business is highly competitive and the stunts her fellow pilots are performing here at home are way more advanced than Bessie's used to. In addition to the normal loop-de-loops and tailspins, these pilots include parachuters and wing walkers, Mm. which are basically pilots who get out on the wing of their plane mid-flight. We've seen those photos. That Mm -hmm. is, I cannot and I will not. And I will not, and you cannot make me. I won't even go bungee jumping. Like, (laughs) truly. The level of risk. It's like when you're sitting in the plane, there's a very high level of risk. And then it's like, I'm going to go out there. Hey, but get out there. You know, because it's the weekend and these people are at an air show. So why not? Even getting up from a commercial flight to pee is a little (laughs) harrowing. really frightening. So Bessie learns that if she wants to compete with these aviators, she needs more lessons. But again, Mm. still, even with the welcome home and everything else, no one will admit her into U.S. flight programs, Mm. any U.S. flight programs. She's proven. She's done it. The U.S. says no. Yep. So in February of 1922, Bessie goes back to France. She takes a two-month advanced training course there, and then she makes her way to the Netherlands, where she meets with renowned aircraft designer Anthony Fokker. So, <laughs> Fokker is primarily known for creating. We have to pause <laughs> and acknowledge and just, and then take and a just breath. And then that she went and she met the Fockers. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Why not? We're adults, kind of. So, this Anthony Fokker is known for creating the Eindecker, which was a single seat fighter monoplane that the Germans used in World War One. So, after Bessie meets him, he sends her to Germany where she trains with a top pilot at the Fokker Corporation. <laughs> so she, again, it's like that thing where she's so smart because she's like, I want to do this. So who do I have to know? Yeah. And who do I have to meet? And who do I have to be friends with? And then she makes it happen. So Bessie returns to the U.S. again in the summer of 1922. And on September 3rd, she gets her first job flying in an air show on Long Island to honor the New York Army National Guard's 369th Infantry Regiment of World War One. So the 369th was an all-black regiment nicknamed the Harlem Hellfighters. Oh. So this event is sponsored by 
you remember Robert S. Abbott, Bessie's friend and the owner of the Chicago Defender. Yeah. And Abbott puts an ad for the event in the Defender, singling out Bessie out of the nine pilots who are participating in the event in this quote unquote flying circus. And he calls her, quote, the world's greatest woman flyer. Now, do you think she brought a copy of this to her brother? And kind of just crammed it in his face. I want to see that. She said, hold still, John. Hold still, John. Here, here. Slowly shoved it literally into his face. How about you choke on it? Like, yeah, the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) The sibling rivalry satisfaction Uh, that she must have had. Truly. Yeah, it's the greatest. Okay, so... So her stunning work at this air show lands her another job six weeks later in Chicago. And this air show is honoring the 370th Infantry Regiment of World War One. Given the press that she received from her show in New York, the hometown girl, the quote unquote hometown girl draws a big crowd and the audience watches in amazement as Bessie pulls off daring loop de loops and figure eights and more, all with her particularly flamboyant style. She quickly gets more air show work and builds up her reputation, and she earns herself a new nickname, Queen Bess. Yes. Way better than the other one. Yes. I love it. While she dazzles crowds across the country, it's no surprise that there are many reporters who are critical of her, writing articles about her being cocky and opportunistic. <laughs> also, if you can do a loop-de-loop in like a plain... In a plane that was made in 1922, you get to be cocky. Yes. Hey. Hey, guess what? Heads up. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Okay. This trash talk doesn't bother Bessie. She knows the only way to be successful in this business is to stand out, and she knows she's got the guts and the brains to do it. Mm. As she gets more successful... Bessie saves her money, and in 1923, she finally has enough to buy her own plane. So she gets a military surplus Curtis JN-4, which is also known as the Jenny biplane. The seller's in Santa Monica, so when Bessie goes to pick up the plane, she schedules a show in L.A. for the same month. But just as Bessie is taking off to fly to the fairgrounds to participate in the air show, Mm -hmm. the plane's motor stalls at 300 feet up. It nosedives and it sends Bessie crashing to the ground below. She survives this crash, but her leg is broken. She has fractured some ribs and her new Jenny is completely destroyed. Oh, my God. The first flight. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It sucks. Yeah. When the medics arrive, Bessie pretends like she's fine and she tells them just to, quote, patch her up so she can get to the show. Oh, my God. They don't listen to her. Of course, they take her straight to the hospital. She stays positive despite this setback and issues a public statement saying, as soon as I can walk, I'm going to fly. But it takes her two years to fully recover from this crash. But just as promised, the moment the doctor clears her, she gets back into that plane again, flying in an air show in Texas on June 19th, 1925. So Bessie continues her barnstorming career over the next few years. But as she becomes more and more popular, she also gets into public speaking. 
She's booked all over the United States, speaking at schools, churches, and theaters to encourage other black people to take up flying. She firmly believes that aviation is a vital growing field that can open doors for black people, declaring, quote, we must have aviators if we are going to keep pace with the times. Mm. Bessie refuses to fly or speak at any event where the audience is segregated. Nice. So badass. Back then, imagine that. Yeah. That's like limits you very, very much. Yeah. At one occasion, Bessie's set to perform at an air show in Texas. But when she finds out that the entrances to the venue will be segregated, she pulls out of the show. She speaks with event coordinators and demands that everyone be allowed to enter the venue through the same gate or she won't perform. And they give in. And then Bessie goes on to like wow everybody and put on an amazing show so because of bessie's status as a rising star she's offered the lead role in a feature film about her life called shadow and sunshine oh my god so an opportunity like this is of course would be a huge help in promoting her career as a stunt flyer but it will also earn her the money that she needs to uh, live her dream of starting her own flight school. Mm. So she gladly accepts the role. But when she finds out in the first scene of the movie, she's supposed to be, it's like supposed to be about her upbringing. She's supposed to wear quote, tattered clothes, carry a walking stick and a pack on her back. She pulls out. (laughs) What the fuck? Yeah. Doris Rich, the author of Queen Bess later writes opportunist, Though she was about her career, she was never an opportunist about race. She had no intention of perpetuating the derogatory image most whites had of most blacks. End quote. Mm -hmm. In an interview with Billboard magazine, Bessie was quoted as saying, no Uncle Tom stuff for me. So she just was like, bye. Yeah, I love it. Mm -hmm. So by April of 1926, Bessie earns enough money to buy herself a new plane. She gets another surplus Jenny biplane in Dallas, Texas, and with the help of her publicist, mechanic, co-pilot, 24-year-old William D. Wills, she gets to go back to flying. Mm -hmm. Her next air show scheduled on May 1st is in Jacksonville, Florida, and she and William fly there together. But the plane has a mechanical issue, and the duo have to make three forced landings so that they can do maintenance on the plane during the trip. They finally make it to Jacksonville on April 30th, 1926, and Bessie and William take to the sky in Bessie's new plane to look for a good parachuting area for the show. So they basically have to, like, scout out the airfield and find where she's going to parachute out of the plane. So William is taken over in the main cockpit, and Bessie is sitting in second position, unbuckled and peering over the side of the plane, looking for a good landing spot. But 10 minutes into the flight, at 3,000 feet in the air, the plane's engine seizes and nosedives, throwing the pair into a devastating tailspin. Bessie, who's still unbuckled, flies out of the plane at 2,000 feet and crashes to the ground to her death. Oh, my God. William is buckled in, but he never manages to regain control of the plane. The plane crashes and bursts into flames, killing William as well. Oh, my God. Bessie Coleman is dead at just 34 years old. Oh, my God. So because William Wills is a white man, Mm -hmm. the mainstream media mostly focuses on his death rather than Bessie's. But... Black newspapers commemorate Bessie and most make her death front page news. Mm -hmm. 
Memorial services are held in both Florida, where Bessie died, and in Chicago, where she primarily lived. And journalist Ida B. Wells leads both ceremonies. And about 10,000 mourners come to pay their respects for the fallen hero. I covered Ida B. Wells, remember? Yes, you did. Oh, yeah. my God. Weird. Ida B. Wells was there, like, the journalist. repping, repping Bessie Coleman. Oh. And and basically speaking at her funeral to talk wow. about what a hero she was. After her services, Bessie is buried in Chicago's Lincoln Cemetery with a headstone commemorating her as, quote, one of the first American women to enter the field of aviation. Before her tragic death, Bessie dreamed of one day opening her own flight school in the U.S. with her primary mission being to empower black people, especially black women, through flying. She never got the chance to realize that dream, but to honor her achievements and to encourage more black people to fly, Chicago automobile businessman William J. Powell establishes an aviation club called the Bessie Coleman Aero Club in the early 1930s. In his 1934 book, Black Wings, Powell credits Bessie with something much bigger than just giving black people the opportunity to fly, saying, quote, because of Bessie Coleman, we have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. Mm. There was a postage stamp in 1995 that was released with Bessie Coleman's image on it. Oh, wow. A small-scale reproduction of her yellow biplane, the Queen Bess, is on display at Atlanta, Texas's Regional History Museum. Bessie Coleman was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 2001, the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 2006, and the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at San Diego Air and Space Museum in 2014. And in 2021, when Juneteenth became a federal holiday, a flyover was held in Colorado to honor both her and the new holiday. Mm. But one of the most notable honors took place in 1992 when astronaut Mae Jameson became the first black woman to travel to space. This gets me. Yeah. On that mission, Jameson carried a photo of Bessie Coleman with her to honor Bessie's groundbreaking legacy. As America's first black and first Native American female pilot. All hail Queen Bess. And that's the amazing, inspiring story of Bessie Coleman. Oh, my God. I've never heard of that. That's incredible. How about that badass? How about Queen Bess (sighs) as the badass? Imagine how many little girls at her air shows like were inspired and became something bigger than they would have ever imagined because of her. I bet there's and so many. Imagine seeing that if if it's like the 20s yeah. and you're just some kid that lives on a farm yeah. and you look up there and see somebody doing that, yeah. like that unbelievable achievement. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Incredible. So good. Oh, great job. Yeah. Right. A little something, you know, a little something upbeat. Yeah. To kick the month off with. Sure. Great job. Right? Yes, for sure. Thank you. Um, well, awesome. Thank you for being here with us this week. And um, thank you for your continued support. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you. Thank you guys so much. And stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer Alejandra Keck. 
Engineer and mixer, Stephen! Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe!